Well, we announced a little while ago that we're going to take a break from our study of Hebrews. We usually uh, typically take a summer break, well, for this very reason. A lot of families take holidays, uh, particularly those families that are at the, the Wicks school, because uh, this is a prime week for them to go away, and, and just really hate for people to miss our, our main study, our book of Hebrews. And so we typically take a, a summer break. We, we focus on something else. Not that other parts of God's Word are less important, but it is a different thing when we are... Uh, you know, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, going through a book of the Bible. It's so important that we do that together as a congregation. So I really hate for a lot of our people to miss that through the uh, the summer months. Um, and so we'll come back to Hebrews in September. Uh, instead, we've decided that we'll do a summer series in the Psalms, and I'm really delighted to uh, to uh, start the first one here. Um, but I, this is the only one I'm scheduled to teach. We actually have uh, f- uh, five other guys that are going to be teaching through the summer. Our, our series in the Psalms. So I'm really, I, I'm super excited to sit under their teaching, and I think you'll really be blessed by, by that as well. Um, so my assignment today is to introduce the book of Psalms and also uh, teach through Psalm 1. So I'm starting a little bit early here so that maybe we can uh, get through this in enough time and um, not uh, give you all heat stroke, because I know it's quite warm uh, in here. Uh, the book of Psalms is, is probably one of the most well-known books in the Bible and even well-known to the, the non-believing world. Everyone's heard passages in the book of Psalms. I've never been to a funeral um, uh, of non-believers where they haven't asked for Psalm 23 to be read. It's, and those, it's just common knowledge of the book of Psalms, uh, places to go uh, to for certain uh, scripture. And the New Testament quotes the book of Psalms the most. Out of all the books in the Old Testament, the New Testament quotes from Psalms. You may not have known that. And, and Psalms, of course, is the biggest book in our, our Bible. It takes a giant chunk. It's made up of 150 chapters, almost smack dab in the middle of your Bible. And then it has the biggest chapter in all the Bible, Psalm 119. There's just a, just a giant uh, chapter. And one of the obvious reasons for, I think, the renown of, of this book of Psalms is the hymns that have been written over the centuries, the songs, we've sung a few of them today, and even the modern songs, The Lord is My Shepherd. Of course, I mentioned that one. You might know Psalm 46, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. You might know Psalm 103, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty. Right? These, are, these are psalms that we kind of are raised singing. Psalm 104, Oh, worship the King, all glorious above. But even today, and, um, and, and in the sort of the more contemporary music, much of it's coming, or inspired by it at least, uh, from the book of Psalms. You might remember back in the 80s with the Amy Grant songs coming out and some of the psalms there. Well, she continues to do uh, that. Quite a few number of psalm songs have come from her. Um, I was a fan when I started in ministry of Mac Powell of Third Day um, and Psalm 24, uh, and just, oh, wow, that's such a great, a great song. But even today, we sang one of them today, a Psalm 34 from a, a group called Shane and Shane, and they are that's just popping these things out left and right. Uh, they have churned out 16, 23, 45, 46, obviously 34, 66, 98, 130, 150. All those are psalms. They are doing uh, those. Sovereign Grace is another big source of of much of the modern songs we're singing coming from the book of Psalms. They have done 62 and 90 and 121 and 130 and 145, 148. So you guys are getting all these songs all the time. They're coming through um, a Christian uh, music, which is a wonderful thing. And it makes sense because Psalms was called the hymnal of the people of God because Psalms is a hymn book. That is what it is. That's what it's designed uh, for. The Hebrew title was Tehillim, or is Tehillim. It means praises. And it was later that the rabbis called it the book of praises because they were assembled into a book. Um, it wasn't until the Septuagint was made, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that this word Psalms came about. It was Psalmos that was uh, made the title. Um, and that word is important because it denotes the, the plucking of a stringed instrument. So it implies that, that these are songs that are meant to be accompanied by instruments 
as we had today on the, the piano or uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, uh, a ukulele, right? We've had different uh, instruments accompanying uh, music, and that makes sense because that's what psalmos literally means. Later, the Latin Vulgate came up with psalterium, and that literally means a stringed instrument. So it's meant to be a sort of a accompanied music. And it's made up, the psalms are made up of many, many writers. Now, what's the, the, what's the one writer that probably you are most familiar with in the book of Psalms? Just shout it out. David. David, that's right. And you know that because King David has written most of them. 75 of the psalms are attributed to King David. Asaph is another guy that appears when you read through psalms. He's done about 12 of those. The sons of Korah, 10 of those. And then you have King Solomon who has done two. And then Moses and Heman and Ethran the Ezraite each did one. And all the rest, the remaining 48, are, are, are anonymous. We don't know who wrote them. But when you have them all together, there's 150 of these psalms. And these psalms are written over a 900-year period. If you go to the Psalm of Moses, Psalm 90, it's probably the earliest. You're talking about 1400 B.C. And the latest, probably being Psalm 137, was written at that exile, um, the exile of the Babylon when they were in Babylon. And that was 586 B.C. to 538 B.C. So you have a, a, a big, big range uh, where this is all written. And so all these psalms are being written. And finally, they were taken and they were assembled into one book. But then they were divided into five books within the book. So I don't know if you ever read, noticed before, but when you read the book of Psalms, if you turn to Psalm 1, as I asked you to do, you might see book 1 right on top of Psalm 1. That's because... Psalm 1 to 41 make up book 1. Psalm 42 to 72 make up book 2. And Psalm 73 to 89, book 3. Psalm 90 to 106, book 4. And then Psalm 107 to the end, book 5. It's divided into these five books. Now, there's no particular reason for this arrangement. Scholars have tried to find why one psalm follows another. There's not really any method to it or or rhyme. Obviously, some things we see together, the majority of David's psalms you find in book one, the song of ascents you all find in book five. But other than that, you don't really see a a major uh, reason for how they are assembled. And there's such a variety of psalms. Now, I've tried my best to get us a good variety this summer so that we're not all having the same type of song. But there are songs that are psalms of laments. You've read those ones and you go away kind of feeling kind of sad. Uh, Psalms of praise and thanksgiving. Psalms that are wisdom psalms, as we will be in today. Um, Psalms that are penitent songs. Psalms that are called imprecatory songs. Those are the psalms that are the curse-pronouncing psalms. And then you have psalms that are obviously about Jesus Christ. They're messianic. So there's a whole bunch of different kinds of psalms that you go through and you come across. But primarily, the psalms are about God and how the people of God are to live joyfully and faithfully in the midst of the difficulties and cares of this life. And this is the idea that there's a a horizontal, all right, temporal reality. This is our our world here. This exists. And everything we do in that horizontal world— is meant to acknowledge the reality of a vertical relationship, the vertical being to God. So everything we do here is in light of who God is. Through all the trials, the triumphs of of, uh, mankind, we're to trust in the sovereign Lord of all creation. That's the idea. His sovereignty is always recognized, but human responsibility is also never dismissed. Now, while... We look at some of these psalms, some of these psalms, you you look at the psalmist and it it seems from their perspective, life is out of control. Life is just out of control. I don't know what to do. And they're crying out to God um, and they're crying out to him in despair. The circumstances, the situations that they're going through, they don't understand them, but they are understood in light of the divine, in light of the sovereignty of God. So I just... That's one of the main themes you're going to see as we go through this. One final thing before we jump into this, and that is that Psalms is a book of Hebrew poetry, okay? So it's not, it's not poetry like we're used to with rhyme and, and meter. It, is, it uses thought lines instead, and uh, it's usually called parallelism. And parallelism is all throughout these things. We'll try to point some of it out when we, when we go through it, but um, it's usually two or, or maybe three thoughts that are... Um, balanced, uh, and maybe a complete, a major thought. That's the idea. And there's several types of parallelism. Synonymous parallelism is when that second line echoes the thought of the first line. 
There is synthetic parallelism, which is the, the second segment explains or it expands the thought of the first. There is antithetic parallelism, and that's a contrast between the first and the second. And then there's climatic parallelism, where that second thought, it completes that thought of the first. And there's a few others. But those are the kind of ideas of Hebrew parallelism. Today, we begin in Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 is an anonymous anonymous psalm. It's not the first psalm written. It's just taken and arranged into this book one and arranged as the first psalm. And it's placed here in this spot as the first psalm for a reason. It's placed here because it's the perfect introduction to the entire book of Psalms. This psalm, Psalm 1, introduces everything that's in store for you in the book of Psalms. It reveals the true sources, get it, here we go, of happiness and misery in the world. Everyone wants to be happy. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked that, right? How do I be happy? And today we're going to look at that. Where does happiness come from? Why are some people happy and why are so many people miserable? Is it they're just their lot in life? Is that the hand that life dealt them? Is it due to circumstances, upbringing? Is it economic or, or social status? It's none of those things. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. And what it does is it highlights the pivotal role that God and his word plays in everything in, in life. So very simply, true happiness, just to kind of just give you a, a snapshot, true happiness comes through obedience to God's word. And misery comes through sin, disobedience to God's word. That's just in a nutshell, life. So in short, Psalms, all of them, it's a description of our human response to God. How do we respond to life in light of the fact that there is God? (laughs) He exists and he's real and he's sovereign. So this Psalm not only points points the way to true happiness and divine blessing, but it also does a warning. It warns about misery. It warns about divine judgment that is going to come to those who disobey. Um, and there, what it essentially does is it divides humanity into two groups. There are two destinies that await mankind, and their destiny is determined by their response to God. So when we look at this, this may seem kind of harsh. You just take humanity and divide it in half? Well, yeah, God's word does that. And so I've titled today's message, Psalm 1, The Two Ways of Man. Mankind, there's two ways of man, and you're going to see that as we go through it. Humanity is divided in, into two groups, and just to sort of uh, throw it out there, because you'll see it right away, uh, the two groups are the godly and the ungodly. Those are the words that the psalm uses, godly and ungodly, or righteous and unrighteous, or you can take it down to its boiled form, blessed, happiness, happy, or miserable. <laughs> Those are the kind of the divided lines. They're all in the same Group. So I'm going to read the passage today. We're in Psalm 1. It's just six verses. So let me just read it all together, and then we'll study it. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Let me pray. God, we just pray for your presence to be with us today as we look at this psalm on, uh, on, a, on a level, Lord, here, it can, it can just seem so, so harsh, so, so brutal, uh, so, so strict. And yet, Lord, at the same time, I pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit would show how, how, um, how much truth there is here, Lord, how much we need to know the truth, how glorious a passage this really is, because it does show the way to true happiness. It ju- does show what the blessed life looks like. And so we just pray that you would help us to see these things. You would open up our hearts for what you want to teach us, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, first, um, it, looking at these two ways of man, it shows us the one way, and it's the way of the godly. Okay, that's point one, the way of the godly. And there it is in verse one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the, the scornful. So here, as we look at the, the godly, we are first looking at the character of the godly. Okay, there is something that happens to a man's character. And I say man, I mean humanities, okay? Man's character, when they come into a relationship with the living God, there is a change. And a change takes place that separates them from the rest of humanity, which is why there's a separation in this passage. The godly and the ungodly, there is a difference. And I just want to start before we get into this, that no one starts in the godly category. None of you, okay, were godly. So no one sits here with self-righteousness. No one says, well, I'm in that category because you didn't start there, brother, okay? And neither did I. We all began in the ungodly category, and you're going to see that as we go through this. But first, this looks at their character. We're looking at those who are godly, and along the way, we'll see how they arrive there, okay? But the godly are blessed, and there's the first word, blessed. It is esher, and it literally is a plural word that is an exclamation that means, oh, the happiness, now, I worked on some slides for you, um, and, but when I work on these at home in my nice, dark little study, I don't know how they're going to look in a light room like this, and so I apologize. Some of these are hard to read. I'll work on them for the guys as they come down um, after me. Uh, but I'll read them out loud so that you know what it's meant to say. But blessed is, is literally, oh, the happiness. So the verse says, oh, the happiness of the man. That's what it's saying. Okay. Great. What's the secret to this happiness? Everyone's seeking happiness. Everyone wants to be happy. Well, great. Then they should read this psalm because here's the key. Happy is the man, verse 1 says, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Here, the truly happy are described as the opposite of the ungodly. So they're the godly. And they are those who are blessed. They're happy. And they're first characterized here, not by what they do, but what they do not do. Blessed are those who do not, okay? So here, they do not do something. Now, I need to go back in history just to give you a little brief. Israel, okay, all in the Old Testament, Israel was chosen by God to be his very own special people. The only covenanted nation on earth, there is no other nation on earth that God has made a covenant with, no other people. Israel are those people. They're unique in Scripture. But he chose them, and he said he wanted to be known through them. And because he is a holy God, he wanted them to be separate from the world so that they would be holy. And through them, the nations of the world would know that there was a holy God. And so there were all these strict uh, limitations in Scripture that would separate them. What they ate had to be different. What they wore had had to be different. How they worshiped had to be different. Everything had to be different than the nations of the world. He's a holy God. He desired them to be holy as well. Well, in a sense, fast forward to the New Testament and the church we really are no different other than that God has not made a specific covenant with us. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, didn't we? We're rolled into the covenant, but he does desire that we be separate from the world. We're meant to be separate. What we see happening today, and I mean today, in the churches around the world is in direct disobedience to God's word. It is not a reflection of what God has intended for his church. Many of the problems that we see in the churches today are a direct result of a friendship with the world rather than a separation from the world. But that was meant to be the case all the time. James says that the purest form of religion is a separation from contaminating influences of the world, okay? In James 1:27, he says pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. That word unspotted means undefiled, un- unsullied, okay? To avoid the polluting nature of the world, he's saying, we've got to be very, very uh, careful. How do we avoid the polluting nature of the world? We've got to make sure we don't fall in love with it. That is very simple. We don't love it. Now, Jesus He told us that we're to remain in the world. He wanted to leave us in the world, but that we're not to be of the world. We're in it, but we're not of the world. So how are we to live in this world, but not be of it, not be part of it? 
Well, Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said it this way, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or God and wealth, which is certainly one of the, 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 the offerings of the world to pollute us. You, you can't serve two masters. It's a matter here of love and devotion. What are you devoted to? What do you love? And when we're presented with two possible masters, okay, we can only be devoted to one. It's a very simple thing. You, you, you got to pick is what I'm saying. You got to choose a side. You can't say, well, I'm going to have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. He says, no, no, no. You got to pick and you got to pick one. That's the idea of separation. And that's why we're strongly warned about the danger of loving the world. If we love the world, then there's no way for us to love God. That's his point. And 1 John 2, 15 and 16 makes this very clear. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here they are, the lust of the flesh, right? Everything in our world is appealing to flesh. Lust of the eyes, appealing to your eyes. And the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. It comes from the world. But God wants us to be separate from the world, to be in the world, but not to be of it, to remain separate in that sense. In our passage today, the world then is defined by three characters, ungodly, sinners, and scornful. Those three words are used in verse one there. And first and foremost, we're told that the godly man does not regard the counsel of the ungodly, okay? The counsel of the ungodly, meaning we don't regard something by how the world sees it but by how God sees it. It goes down to principles. The principles of the world are what guide the counsels of the world. So we've got to question the principles of the world. The world is governed by ungodly principles. The world is governed then, if they're ungodly, that means they're anti-God. And if they're anti-God, that means they're satanic principles. Now, I know that seems going really far, but listen, the Bible says that Satan is the God of this age. He's the God of this world. And so... Today's world, I think this has never been more clear. And I was going to give an illustration of that, and then someone handed me this wonderful tract. And so I'm just going to use this as the illustration for today. But it's a little tract called Life's Ultimate Questions by Vody Bauckham Jr., who I happen to really love. And he writes this, that these are answers from our culture, okay, to the questions that we would ask them. So here's the counsel of the world. Who am I? That's the question. Who am I? Here's the world. You are an accident. You are a mistake. You are a glorified ape. You are the result of random evolutionary process, and that's it. No rhyme, no reason, no purpose. This is the pathetic reality when evolution runs its full course. If the idea is carried to its logical conclusion, human beings have no value. You are ultimately nothing. That is the counsel of the world. Why am I here? You are here to consume and enjoy. That's the only thing that matters. When the famous... Uh, philanthropist John D. Rockefeller was asked how much money is enough. He was as honest as any man has ever been. He responded, just a little bit more. Consume and enjoy. That's why you're here. What's wrong with the world? Well, people are either insufficiently educated or insufficiently governed. <laughs> so education or government solves all the problems, right? Boy, we see that's wrong. That's what's wrong with the world. People don't either know enough or they're not being watched enough. So how can... Uh, what is wrong be made right. The solution is more education and more government. Teach people more stuff. Give them more information. How do we combat AIDS? Through AIDS awareness. How do we combat racism? Anti-hate classes. How about the man who beats his wife? Anger management classes. Just give people more information and everything else will be fine. The answers provided by our culture leave us wanting and empty. And that is so true. Thank you for that. It was much better than what I was going to share. The battle against the counsel of the ungodly is strong. It's here. It's all around us. And we have to be very, very uh, careful of uh, listening or uh, even allowing any of that to come into our minds. Remember Joseph of Arimathea? He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin was a Jewish uh, leadership council made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. And, and uh, he was a follower of Jesus, but the Sanhedrin had decided they wanted to kill Jesus. Did he go along with that counsel? How did he stand up and not go along with the counsel of the ungodly? Well, in Luke 23, 50, we're told this. Now, behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. 
Listen, we're gonna we're gonna get the information, aren't we? We're gonna get the counsel. We're gonna hear the government. We're gonna hear education. Uh, I will call them re-education centers. We're gonna, they're gonna tell us what we should be doing or what how we should be living. But we need to decide if we're gonna walk in that counsel or not. Do we do that or do we not? It's the counsel of the ungodly. If he had given into that counsel, then he would have gone to the next step in the psalm. He would then have been standing in the path of the sinners. Do you see that? It's a slippery slope. When you begin to listen to the counsel of the ungodly, what the world says, you soon find yourself making friends with the wrong people. He would have been able to avoid the path of sinners, but since he walked in the counsel of the ungodly, or he could have walked, he finds himself making the wrong kinds of friends. What's wrong with making the wrong kinds of friends in the world? Let me just take you to another psalm real quick. It's Psalm 36. If you don't mind just turning there real briefly, Psalm 36. I'll just read the first four verses to you. We're going to look at a few psalms today, but Psalm 36 is the first one, verses 1 to 4. This is the psalm of David. He says, An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes. When he finds out his iniquity and when he hates, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. Here, very simply, you, you see uh, 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 just the wrong friend, what this kind of person is. He's prideful. He flatters his own eyes. He, he doesn't hate uh, sin. He doesn't hate iniquity. He, he lives in it. His way isn't good. He doesn't abhor evil. But listen, the, uh, the godly, the believer, the person who's professed Christ as their Lord and Savior is supposed to avoid those kinds of friends. Scripture clearly warns of the danger of making friends with the world. We go to the wisdom of the Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 4, verses 14 to 15. It says this, Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Very, very specific passage. Don't enter the path of the wicked. Don't walk in the way of evil. Avoid that direction. Why? Because if you don't, then you're soon going to be in their constant company. Okay? You'll soon be a friend of that world. And really, that's an Old Testament wisdom passage, Proverbs 4. But look at a New Testament passage. It goes even further. James 4.4 4 says that those who make friends of the world are adulterers and adulteresses. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Making friendship with the world is choosing a side. Do you see that? It's choosing a master. And Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. And if you make a friend of the world, well, you've chosen. You've chosen a side. And because you've chosen a side, James says, well, we make an enemy of God. And when the friendships of the world become important to us, then we soon will find ourselves seated with the scornful. That's the the next step. Those who openly mock God. They sit in the seat of the scornful. You know, those that scorn God, those are the ones that are openly promoting the advancement of the kingdom of Satan. That is in direct opposition to God. They seek to condemn the righteous. They seek to condemn those who are trying to live for the Lord. Is that not what you see today? You stand for what is right. And let's just be honest. What's obviously right? You don't have to believe her. You have to be a believer to to know what's right about being a male or female, but you will be persecuted for that today. But listen, we have scoffers in our world who are now so excited that they have even more that they can scoff about. We can just choose to be who we want to be. I am created in my own image, not the image of God. A scoffer is the scornful. That scoffer is described in Proverbs 21 24, he's a proud and haughty man. Scoffer is his name. He acts with arrogant pride. Scoffer. Many of you know I used to be a youth pastor. That's how I kind of began in ministry. I started as a children's pastor, then youth ministry. And I have met so many, or at least talked with so many, sometimes over phone and Facebook, of our young people that went away to the re-education camps. And they got the counsel of the world. I'm not joking. That is what they are. And if you haven't prepared your young people for what they're going to be taught and what they're going to hear there, um, you, you, you better. 
But I have met so many that went there and then they just completely walked away. And I know you can read statistics books, but I'm just telling you I was there. I saw so many of them just completely left, left the faith because they're in these camps and they're just telling them there's no God and there's this and there's that and there's this. And they began to question, well, who knows more? This guy with this PhD or my stupid pastor back home. That's, the, that's, that's just the, the blatant truth. And you guys remember when we uh, got kicked out in 2015, we had to go back to the States. I was not there a week and a girl came biking up, and it was a girl that used to be in my youth ministry. And she came biking up. She goes, Pastor Kevin, like I thought you were out of the country. Where, where have you been? I said, I just got back. Where have you been? She was dressed like a young boy. And I, I said, how, that's like you've been doing so well. How you been doing? She goes, yeah, well, I kind of walked away from everything. So she sat down and kind of told me her, her life story. She went, to, she went to university. She went to college. She began to walk away. She began to experiment with different things. She began to go, oh, yeah, I can be a boy. I can be a girl. I can be. And she just got her life in such a mess. She didn't know where to go. Praise the Lord. She said, I'm going to go back to something I believed was real at one point. And I just happened to be there. I just happened to get kicked out of the country to go back. To, Who knows? Maybe the Lord kicked me out so I could just talk to this young girl. And I was able to be there to, to minister uh, with her and through the, a very difficult time trying to get her feet back on the right path. She felt like she had gone so far down the wrong path that she couldn't get back on the right path. You know what I mean? And I said, listen, you cannot mess yourself up to the point where God cannot fix it. So I'm just saying it's a very real thing. We have to be very, very careful about the counsel of the ungodly and where it comes from. And, and our hearts should be where Psalm 119, 115 is. It says this, depart from me, you evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. I don't even want to be around that because I know it's going to keep me away from the commandments of God. I want to keep the commandments of, the God, of my God. The character of the godly is first described here by what they don't do. They don't, they don't go to the counsel of the wicked. They don't listen to those things. But next in verse 2, they're described by what they do. Okay, look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. They delight in the law of the Lord. That's the counsel they choose to listen to and to receive, not the counsel of the world. But what does God's word say? And not only delighting in it, but they meditate on it. You see, they think about it. That's precisely how we keep the counsel of the ungodly at bay. We've got to have truth in our minds, right? There's not a void there. We don't just go, I'm not going to listen to that. We've got to have something we do listen to. It has to be truth. Psalm 17, 4 says this, concerning the works of men, okay, so the counsel of the ungodly, by the word of your lips, I've kept away from the paths of the destroyer. You see that? So, so it's the word of God, folks. It, it, it starts there. If I'm not meditating on God's word, delighting in his law, then I'm going to easily, easily fall under, under the sway of the, the wicked. Instead, I've got to delight on, in his word. His word is what transforms lives. How many people do we know that came to faith during lockdown when churches weren't even open? By picking up a Bible, Bryony. Picked a Bible, read it, God saved her, done, right? What do you delight in is the question, amen. What occupies your thoughts? Here's it. We love to think about what we love. That's it. I love to dwell on what I love. What do you love? That's the question. What do you love? What's the meditation of your heart? Psalm 19, verse 14. I think this was a memory verse a little back ago, but it says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Isn't that amazing? Not just the words of my, not just what I say so everyone else sees I'm saying the right things. No, 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 no. But the meditation of my heart you can say all the right stuff, listen, and put on a good show for the church, but talk is cheap. Let the meditation of my heart be acceptable to God. I don't care. You don't have to be somebody fake in front of Pastor Kevin. I, I don't care. What matters is God. What does God think of you? He knows your heart. Let the meditation of my heart be acceptable. And when we meditate on God's word and particularly on his wonderful promises to his people, boy, you know, we, we care less and less about the empty promises of the world. And I know for our young people, it's easy to think, oh, but this world is so exciting. And it's the older people that go, oh, I'm ready to get out of here because we've been here long enough, right? And we kind of, and I remember thinking that as a young person too. Like, oh, they're just old. They haven't, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go take on the world. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to do everything. But listen, it's, it's a matter of, uh, of the promises. What do you think you're actually enjoying? What are you actually getting out of it? Why do we say empty promises? Because, boy, it looks fun. And guess what? When I did it, it was fun. Yeah, but did you need more fun after that? 
I mean, did that fund fill you up? You didn't need any more fun for the rest of your life? No, you needed more. You needed something else. You needed something greater, another high, another buzz, whatever it might be. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says this, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. That's, that's humanity. You are offered infinite joy in the presence of God, not floating on some cloud. That's the counsel of the ungodly. The counsel of the world says, what are you, you just like this little naked cherub baby floating for eternity? That's boring. That's why we went through the heaven and earth right, um, stuff last year so people would understand what your eternity really is. Because, because it, it matters, doesn't it? It doesn't it matter where you're going to go. It doesn't matter what the promises are. It does. Because then I realize, wow, this stuff really is garbage. Like, this doesn't give me any hope. Nothing. I long for the things of the Lord. And I'm supposed to long for God's word more than anything. When you read through Psalm just 119, I know it's a big psalm. Psalm 118. In that one psalm, throughout it, as you read it, it tells us that God's words should be better than all these things. One of them is food. How many of you love food, right? A lot of food lovers, right? Well, God's word should be better to us than even food. How about, how about sleep? How many people love that sleep? How about that nap? Yeah. God's word should be better than sleep, according to Psalm 119. And all through it, by the way, God's word should be better to us than wealth, than all the treasures of the world. And, and God's word should be better to us even than friends of the world, it says. But that's the character of the godly. It's separation from the world. And when they are, they are blessed. They are happy. And as a result, observe their condition. This is their condition in verse 3. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. You know, throughout Scripture, the tree is used as a symbol of life and of beauty and of fruitfulness. And, and here, I, I want to tell you, it even has a little bit more greater significance because of two words we're going to look at in a moment, planted and, and rivers, okay? But there's a passage in Jeremiah, and it, and it really closely mirrors this, and I want, to, I want to show you this. It's Jeremiah 17, verses 7 to 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its root by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. It just gives us a bigger picture. And so I wanted to show you that. It's a picture. The tree is a picture of the godly man here. And he's rejected the counsel of the world. He's chosen to trust in the counsel of God and in his promises. And when you do that, he said, even when the heat comes, because it will come, even when the drought comes, you won't be anxious. You won't, you won't worry. Even when those comes, those things come, you don't cease to yield fruit. You, you still produce. Why? Because there's real happiness there. Do you see the people that, that don't trust in the Word of God? When hard things come, what, what happens? It all goes out the window. Didn't you see that over the last couple of years? All goes right out the window. And you can see where they really have placed their faith and trust. All the joy has gone. All the happiness is gone. All the hope is gone. Why? Because those things are placed in the wrong object. Their hope was in the wrong things. Their hope was in the things of the world. But the righteous, okay, they're like this tree. Now, why are they like that? Now, here's the clue. The two words, planted and rivers. This first word, planted, shathal. Here's what the word actually means, transplanted. It is not planted. Trees don't plant themselves unless they're a wild tree. This is a transplanted tree. Someone must dig up a tree and take it somewhere else and plant it somewhere else to be a transplanted tree. And this is a picture of the redeemed man. This is the truth. Remember I told you none of you started out as the godly man? Okay, none of you started out as this planted tree. You were planted somewhere else. So was I. We were literally, by the power of God, transplanted. Psalm 92, verses 12 to 14, give us a similar picture. It says, The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God, and they shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. They're planted where? In the house of the Lord. 
Well, how do you get planted in the house of the Lord? Anyone born in the house of the Lord? Anyone born a Christian? Well, some people think they are. I was born into a Christian family, so I'm a Christian. That's not how you're a Christian. That's not how, you know, you're never born into the house of God. No one is born redeemed. They're born sinners. David wrote this in Psalm 51.5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. That is you and that is me. We're born sinners. No one's born redeemed. No one's born perfect. No one's born righteous. Remember when Jesus, this is a wonderful thing, he, he went into the synagogue of Nazareth and he read from this passage in Isaiah, okay? In Isaiah 61, I'll just give you the first two verses here. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And right there, not even all the way through verse 2, he closed the book, right? And he said, Today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He basically read from Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet said, this is me. I'm the one that has come to preach good tidings to the poor. What's the good thing you're going to preach? I'm going to bring people that are captives out. I'm going to take them out of the prisons. Do you see that? What's he talking about? Jesus came preaching a new kingdom. We're all part of the lost kingdom, okay? The ungodly kingdom. Jesus came to transplant us, to take us out of one kingdom and plant us into another. That is the whole picture. That's the whole idea. Now, Jesus closed the book there for a reason. He closed the book because that is his mission here on earth at his first coming. If you had read on in verse 2, it goes on to talk about him coming as judge. Well, that's later, which is why he closed the book here. Is that interesting? He didn't actually read the rest of verse 2. But if he had continued on to verse 3, look at verse 3. He's also come to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called what? Trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. The planting of who? The Lord. Isn't that incredible? Jesus came with this message. There's a new kingdom. There's going to be trees of righteousness. Everybody, they're all trees. But they're trees of unrighteousness. There's none who does right. No one does good. No one seeks after God. No, not one, Scripture says. We're all ungodly. But God God has this amazing plan. I'm going to send someone to take these these trees and make some of them trees of righteousness. And they'll, they'll be the planting of the Lord. Incredible. The New Testament pictures this as being taken from one kingdom and placed into another. That's the redeemed. In Colossians 1.13, he says this, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Conveyed means to transfer from one place to another. So he's taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That's Jesus Christ. The transplanting of the Lord takes us from one place, places us into another. But not just in some random place. Did you notice in Psalm that we're planted by the rivers of water? The word literally means canals for irrigation. It's not just some random river. This is purposely dug to feed and nourish the tree. This speaks of the invisible part of the tree, right? The the part you don't see, the roots. The roots go down and drink up the nourishment. That's what provides everything to the tree that's needed for it to flourish. The godly man has hidden resources as well that keep him healthy, that keep him fruitful. Those resources come from Jesus Christ himself. We're transplanted in him. That's what was meant when Jesus talked about abiding in him. Remember that in John 15, abiding in him? He gave this picture of himself as a vine and uh, of, of believers as branches. And in 15 verse four, he said, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So the one who abides in Christ you abide in Christ, you have the necessary resources to produce fruit. That's the idea. You got to abide in me. And he says that, that, and going back into our passage, that tree that's planted by the rivers of water brings forth its fruit in its season. That's being attached to the vine. In John 15, 5, the very next verse, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So when we're attached to Christ, when we're planted by by him, into him, we have all the resources we need 
to produce the fruit. That's really the key to knowing those who are truly God's and those who are not, isn't it? It's the health of the tree. Is there fruit? Is it green? Or is it withering? Is it healthy? See, if God has planted it, it's going to produce fruit. The fruit is called the fruit of the, what is it? Spirit. There you go. New believer right there. She's on it. Spirit. Points for Bryony. Listen, if God has not planted the tree, then it produces fruit of the flesh. There's fruit of the spirit or fruit of the flesh. Now, I want to just show you what that means because we've been talking about ungodly and kind of just, uh, the, these terms. But the fruit of the flesh and what the ungodly are are specifically described here in Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now, just look at it. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Okay, that means we can see them, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this just looks like a list. If you do all these things, you do these things, then God's just going to smash you. He's just going to, because you just, you did these things, and these things are bad. Don't do these things. That's not the picture at all. That's not the picture at all. These are evidence of someone who is not redeemed, someone who is a dead tree, someone who has no fruit. The fruit are fruits of the flesh. And often when you ask people if they think they're basically good, they say, yeah, because they didn't murder, and murder was on that list. I didn't commit adultery. Adultery was on that list. But can I ask you, are you contentious? Are you a jealous person? You ever, you ever have an outburst of wrath? Are you an angry person? Are you selfish, always looking out for you? Are you a, a hater? Do you hate people? I mean, these are all things in that list. Envy, ever envied anything or anybody? Those are evidence of the flesh. You're a slave to the flesh. You're a tree bearing bad fruit, which comes from the counsel of this world and the wickedness of your own heart. You need to be replanted into God's kingdom. The fruit of his kingdom is listed in the very next verse. So they're contrasted. There's the fruit of the flesh. Here's the fruit of the spirit. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. That's interesting, isn't it? You just go, it's just a bunch of stuff. It's just loving and kindness and long... Listen, people aren't basically good. You're not naturally loving and kind. We're naturally selfish. We're naturally haters. We naturally envy. That's my natural self. But the fruit of the... Not fruits. Fruit. One of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, peace. That means you get them all, folks. All these things should begin to be evident in your life. And if those things are evident uh, in your life, there's no law against you. There's nothing that condemn you because you have the fruit. And the fruit is evidence that you're planted by the rivers of water. God planted you there, and the rivers of water are Christ himself. He, he's done it all. It's incredible. And now think about the fruit there. The fruit, do you ever seen a tree eat its own fruit? I've never seen that. Got a pear tree in the back. I'm still waiting for the tree to eat its fruit. The fruit's not for the tree, is it? The fruit's for who? It's for others. It, it, it does affect you, right? If you have joy, well, that definitely affects you, but it's actually for others. Your love affects others. Your joy and kindness affects others. The fruit are, it's, it's for others. It's not for you. Your kindness affects the world. Your love and joy and patience, all those things influences an ungodly world. That's how you are known by your fruit. Luke 6, 43 to 44, Jesus said this, for a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. What kind of fruit are you bearing? You know, you draw people to yourself if you're a person of joy and patience and long-suffering. That's the fruit. And listen, ultimately, it's the fruit is not even that. The, the fruit is for God. Ultimately, God wants to use that. He can only use trees that bear good fruit. John the Baptist said this in Luke 3, 9, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, plural. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
So here in this verse, man, all mankind is seen as trees, right? Not just the godly, all of them. But only the godly are producing the fruit that's acceptable to God. The, the other fruit, those trees, there's no fruit. They're, it's going to be chopped down. It's, it's good for just burning. Why? Because he himself planted those trees. He himself supplies them with the resources necessary to produce the good fruit. A life change has taken place. And listen, you and I don't do that. He just calls us to believe. Believe. That's it. So this tree, this tree going back to our past, is, is also going to have green, healthy leaves. Leaves that do not wither. Right? It brings forth season, but also the leaf doesn't wither. There's a life-sustaining resources constantly nourishing the tree. Okay, but then look at that little, little, last little phrase there in verse 3. It kind of suspends the analogy of the tree. And whatever he does shall prosper. All of a sudden, we're not talking about a tree. All of a sudden, we're talking about somebody. He, whatever he does, shall prosper. And we're coming back to that man. We're coming back to the man that we began with, the man who delights in the law of the Lord, the man who meditates on it day and night. That man, by God's standards and not the world's, okay, that man is a prosperous man. He shall prosper in everything. Meaning this, he's going to accomplish all that God has intended for him to accomplish. Ephesians 2.10, this is a mind-blowing verse, by the way. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I don't do good works to get in the good graces of God. I do works because God has already taken me to do the good works. He's prepared me beforehand to do them. I mean, it's crazy, but this is the idea, right? I have been planted. I've been given the resources necessary to produce the fruit that he could use me to do the works that he's called me to do. It's incredible, isn't it? But that's the picture of the godly man. But now the psalmist turns to address the ungodly, and he's not so descriptive. He's very brief uh, here. The focus has so far been on the character and the condition of the godly, and he's done that to, I think, create a desire for that kind of life. Rather than focus on all the negative, he's focused on the positive. Who, who wouldn't want to be that man? That man is firm and planted in truth. The man who is happy and blessed. Listen, this is not a promise for health, wealth, and prosperity, by the way when it says you shall prosper, but a promise for spiritual health, wealth, and prosperity. Nothing can take that away. But what is the way of the ungodly? That's the next point. The way of the ungodly comes to us here in verse 4. But the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. It's an abrupt change. In fact, it literally says, not so the ungodly. That's how it is, is rendered. Quite simply, the ungodly are the exact opposite in character and condition of the godly. That's why there's not, not a description here. They do live according to the counsel of the world. The world is their primary source of guidance. The world says, and I do. That's, that's how they live. They do make friends with the world, and they do mock and scorn God and his people because it's, it's taught to them that it's ridiculous, it's fantasy, it's people who believe in unicorns, right? They don't delight in God's word, and consequently their minds are are filled instead with worldly desires, which are going to produce what? The works of the flesh, which we read in Galatians 5. And this is why scriptures here says, and this is, I know it sounds brutal, but they're like the chaff. You know the chaff, that little kind of shell around the, the wheat? That's what's separated from the wheat. The wheat is kept, but the chaff is blown away. Why? It's useless. It's not worth anything. It has no function. It has no use. And so it's, it's blown away by the wind. What a graphic picture. And Jesus, in using the, the planted tree analogy, he, he says it this way in Matthew fifteen thirteen. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Which implies what? Everyone not uprooted will be planted by the heavenly Father. Every tree, every righteous tree is planted by the heavenly Father. Those that have not been planted by him are uprooted. He takes them away. So this is a picture of a dead tree or a picture of, a, of the chaff. Either way you look at it, from God's point of view, the ungodly are, aren't useful. That's what he says. They're, they're, they're destined for a judgment. Now, hang on a second. I know it sounds rough, but I, I want to look at verse 5 here. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. This is the terrible uh, conclusion and the destiny of 
the ungodly. He says they will not stand in the judgment. That means they will not be approved or raised up in the judgment. Instead, the judgment will find them guilty. They will be condemned. And the judgment will find them as workers of iniquity, of sin, not of good. Why? Because they're bearers of bad fruit, bad trees. They're the chaff. And as a result, they have no future place with the righteous. There's going to be a separation, Scripture talks about, a separation in the future um, at the great judgment. It's, It's called the sheep from the goats. It's also called the wheat from the tares, a separation of the just and the unjust that will take place. And Matthew 13, verses 49 to 50 gives us this picture. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. I know this is the hellfire brimstone thing that people just always sort of, you know, picture in, in churches. But this is Psalm 1 that is trying to give a picture of two ways of man. There are two destinies of man. One leads to everlasting life. One is a blessed and healthy and a wealthy life spiritually. One is destined for judgment. It is just trying to get truth out there. But look at the very last verse, verse 6. And this point is the Lord knows the way. We've looked at the way of the ungodly. We looked at the way of the um, godly. But now the Lord knows the way of the righteous, verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. See, God knows the way of the righteous because he is the one that made them righteous. He's the one that planted them. He's the one that brought the good fruit about in their lives. He knows them not just intellectually because God knows all things. He knows them intimately. He leads. He guides. He directs our steps. He orders our ways. He brought me up out of a horrible pit, one of the Psalms says. Out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock. He established my steps. It's God who does these things. But the ungodly do not know the Lord. They only know their own way, the way of the ungodly. Do you see that? The Lord knows the way of the righteous. This is what it's saying. I don't know that way. I never knew that way. The Lord knows the way, which is why I've trusted in him. But the ungodly only know the way of the ungodly. It's the way that leads to death. Jesus is going to say these words to those people in Matthew 7, 23. He says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It does come down to who do you know? He knows the way of the righteous. He doesn't know, in that sense, the way of the ungodly. So here are the two ways of man. The two paths of man, you could say. One path leads to life. One path leads to destruction. Matthew 7, 13 to 14 speaks of it about a gate. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go and buy it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. That is the truth of our world. It seems like so many people on this broad path to destruction, so many, so few that that look for this narrow gate, so few find it. The Psalms that we just looked at here, Psalm 1, begins with this word blessed, happy. But it ends with this word perish. It's It's the two ways, isn't it? One way is blessed. One way is perish. But listen, there's good news. There's a way to avoid the perish. And John 3, 16, a famous well-known verse, tells us that God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not what? Perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, listen, Jesus is the way out of destruction. Jesus is the lifeboat. He is, he is the only one that have come, has come to save us, to take us out of the kingdom of darkness and plant us into his own kingdom, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of salvation. All we must do is believe in him and he does the rest. There was a old, old, old psalm written off of one of the psalms and I'm just gonna read it to you as a closing. It says this, blessed is the man who makes the word of God his constant guide. There learns the path his savior trod nor turns his step aside but shuns the broad and flowery way where vice and folly love to stray. He, like a tree, whose spreading root, refreshing waters lave, whose bending boughs with golden fruit in rich luxuriance wave. 
shall firmly stand when storms invade. No leaf shall fall, no blossom fade. And when his life's brief summer o'er, he shares the general doom, though earth shall know his place no more, in heaven he still shall bloom. And there with endless glory crowned in fruits of righteousness abound. Believers will know the general doom, that is death, all men die, but it's destined for man to die once and after that to face the judgment, but not so for the believer, because the believer has been forgiven of every transgression. You've been planted by rivers, transplanted and, and, and placed by rivers of living water that spring up into everlasting life, Jesus said. Aren't you thankful for that? Psalm 1 is a roadmap for the rest of the Psalms. As we look at the different avenues of mankind and where they find themselves, how do you respond to that? What is your response to God? There are two ways of man. I pray that you will choose the one way that leads to everlasting life. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for this wonderful psalm. Lord, I know it just seems so harsh sometimes with these very black and white people are going to hell and destruction and and others won't. But Lord, the truth of it is is that we were all destined for hell. We were all uh, trees bearing bad fruit. We were all lumped in the same category of the ungodly or sinners or scornful. We were all there, all of us. It is only through your amazing grace that any of us have been saved. By grace, we have been saved through faith. Lord, thank you so much that you you, you took this little tree and you, you planted me in your kingdom. Lord, I've seen the fruit of that in my life. I've seen the fruit of it bear fruit in life of my wife and children and the life of others. Lord, that's the fruit that you see and you look for. So grateful for that. Lord, I, I don't know where people stand here. Some, if anyone's here that isn't sure where they, where they are, where they stand before you, I pray that you would make yourself known. They would understand that what they need is first and foremost a Savior, Jesus Christ, who's come to die for our sins. We're all sinners. We're all born in iniquity. We all need forgiving. And Jesus took the penalty for our sin that we might be transplanted into that new kingdom with him. God, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for the opportunity to study these wonderful psalms this summer. I pray that your people will be edified and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.